We're going to be listening to Rick Warren, Saddleback Church, which is an incredible message. I learned so much from this man and helps us to be better. This particular one has four and a half million views. Learn how to recognize God's voice with Rick Warren. Please enjoy. Listen with me. Last week, we began a new uh, mini-series on understanding how to hear the voice of God. Very few things are more important than this because you can't have a relationship to God if you can't hear God. If all you do is ever talk to Him in prayer and you never hear God speak to you, that's a one-way relationship. That isn't much of a relationship. God wants to speak to you. Now this week, I want us to look at the issue of how do I know when it's God? When I get an idea in my mind, how do I know where that idea came from, that impression, that thought? How do I know it didn't come from the devil or it came from the bad burrito I ate last night? Or, or it came from uh, my own thoughts. I just thought it up. I mean, you talk to yourself all the time. I talk to myself all the time. I am my own best friend. And you're talking, you have a running conversation with you throughout the day. How do I look? How do I feel? What's going on? How should I handle that? Respond to that. And it's very easy to sometimes be confused on, is this God telling me to do this? Or is this just something I want to do? You know what I'm talking about? Is this really just my idea? Or did God give me this idea? Or did it come from the devil? Or is it some bad tape that I'm playing in the past? It is extremely important. You know how to discern when it's God talking to you. Because if you don't, it can be fatal. The Bible says this. If you take out your message notes on Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. What you think is the right road may lead to death. In other words, it can be fatal. And, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, a lot of evil gets blamed on God when people say, well, God told me to do this. The Bible says in 1 John uh, 4.1, don't believe every message you hear just because someone says it's a message from God. Test it first to see if it really is. Circle the phrase, test it. That's what we're going to talk about this weekend. I want you to learn seven ways to test an impression from the Bible. It's a very important and practical message so that you can know how to test a message from God. Because the fact is, one moment you can get an idea from God, and the next moment you can get an idea from Satan in a split second. Let me give you a classic example of it. One day Jesus is with his 12 disciples, and and uh, he, he turns to Peter, one of the twelve, and he says, uh, Peter, who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter says, well, Lord, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus looks straight at Peter and he says, right on, Pete. He, sa he says, you have spoken the truth. He said, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, Peter, that idea didn't come from you. That idea came from God. 
He said, you're right, you spoke the truth, I am the Son of God, and that idea that was put in your mind came from God. It wasn't revealed by flesh and blood. Immediately, Jesus says to Peter, now Peter, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die there. And Peter immediately says, that's nonsense, Lord. You can't let them do that to you. And not five seconds later, Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. What's he saying? He said, that thought didn't come from God. That God thought, Peter, that you just spoke came from the devil. That's how quick you can miss it. One minute you can be saying, you're right. That thought came from God, and upon this rock, this truth, I will build my church. And the very next second, you're saying something, and Jesus looks and says, Peter, you didn't get that one from God. That's the devil. Because the devil did not want Jesus to die, because die, in dying on the cross, he would die for the sins of mankind and allow our salvation. And he didn't want that to happen in that way, knowing that. He said, that thought is from the devil. Now, how do you know? Well, he says... Test it. Look at the next verse. Jesus said in John 7, 17, Anyone who wants to do God's will, now that's the key. you got to want to be willing to do it in advance. Anyone who wants to do God's will can test this teaching and know whether it's from God or whether I'm making it up. Jesus says, you know what? You can test what I say and you can then know for sure that it's from God. Now, how do you do that? Well, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at seven ways to test an impression. Now, these seven tests form a filter. And if you get an idea from God, or you get an idea in your mind, you're going, did I just think that up? Or is that from the devil? Or is that some old tape that my great-grandmother said or something? Or is that really from the Holy Spirit? You test it by these seven tests. And if it passes all seven, then you can know for certain it's from God. Now, you can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, that passed test one, three, five, and seven, but it didn't pass two, four, and six. No, no, it's got to pass all seven. But if an idea that you have passes all seven tests, then you can know absolutely certain, and God wants you to know this, that you have heard from God. And God put that idea in your mind, and it is something he wants you to do. All right, let's look at these seven tests from the Bible. The first test, there's seven questions. The first question is, does it agree with the Bible? Does the idea that I've got in my mind right now, that thought, that impression, does it agree with the Bible? Because God's will will never contradict God's word. What he's already said. God doesn't say one thing and then change his mind and say another thing. If he said it, it's true, and it will always be true. See, God is consistent. God isn't moody. God doesn't change his mind. God will never tell you to violate a principle that he's already given in his word, the Bible, the word of God. He won't tell you to ignore this book. He'll never tell you to disobey this book. So the first question you ask is, does this line up with what God has already said? And if what I have in my mind contradicts something God has already said, then I know I'm wrong, that it didn't come from God, because truth is eternal. Notice these verses, Luke 21, 33, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will never, circle that, never pass away. God's word is eternal. The earth isn't eternal, the universe isn't eternal, but God's word is eternal because truth never changes. If something was true 5,000 years ago, it was true 1,000 years ago. It is true today, and it will be true 5,000 years from today because truth doesn't change. Opinions change. Science changes. Scientific discoveries change. I mean, the science textbook's out of date almost instantly the moment it's, who wants to buy last year's, uh, you know, uh, computer book? It's out of date. But God's word doesn't change, and truth never changes. In fact, if it's new, it's not true. What do you mean by that? I'm saying it's always, if it's true, it's been around forever. We just discovered, for instance, um, many years ago, we discovered that the world was round. Prior to that, people believed the world was flat. Now, the world was never flat. It's always been round. It's always been round even when we didn't believe it was round. Okay? It was true whether you believe it or not. People say, God said it. That, I believe it. That settles it. Well, no. God said it. That settles it whether you believe it or not. Because God cannot lie. I lie, you lie, but God cannot lie. And so God always tells you the truth. And if he told you in this book to do something, then he's never going to contradict it. So the first question I ask is, is this idea in harmony with the word of God? Uh, for instance, let me give you some examples. Uh, in the book of Romans, the Bible tells us, pay your taxes. We are commanded as good citizens to pay our taxes. And Jesus said... Um, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. Now, if all of a sudden you get an idea, God told me to not pay my taxes this year. That wasn't God. That wasn't God. Because God has already said, pay your taxes, and he's not going to contradict it. Um, if I go over here to the book of Proverbs, there's a bunch of principles for how to have a successful business in the book of Proverbs. And one of the principles is God says, I bless businesses with integrity. Businesses that are fair in every business dealing, businesses that are just, businesses that are honest. And so if you get an idea that, well, you know what, I could make a little bit bigger profit this year if I just shaved a little. I know it wouldn't be quite right if I was a little dishonest. My profits could increase. That idea did not come from God because it contradicts what God has already said. The Bible tells us that sex is not dirty. Sex is holy. God thought it up. It was his idea. And God created sex to be the glue between a husband and a wife. And many times in Scripture, God says sex is to be reserved only for a husband and a wife in the bonds of a marriage. Now, you may not like that, but it doesn't make it untrue. And you may say, well, I want to go out and have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. Well, fine, but you didn't get that idea from God. That's your idea. And don't say, God told me to go have sex with that person, because he didn't. <laughs> That's a good pickup line. Going to a bar. God told, God told me you're to have sex with me, right? Well... That's the God card. You don't play the God card in dating, okay, all right? Now, the Bible says that even if some angel showed up 
and came along and said, oh, by the way, I've got some new revelation. I've got some stuff to add to this book. Uh, yeah, that's good, but here's the new stuff. This is the new revised, and we're going to update it. We're going to give you one or two or more other books besides the Bible. God says, you know, that's not right. In fact, here's what the Bible says, Galatians chapter 1. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including myself, Paul says, who preaches any other message. Even if an angel comes from heaven and preaches any other message, says, no, no, the Bible's not enough. You've got to add this to it. You've got to add this revelation. You've got to add this book. You've got to add this thought. If anybody else adds to it, he goes, let him be cursed. The Bible says this again in Revelation. You may not add to what God has already said. The second test is, when I get an idea, I ask, does this make me more like Christ? Does this idea make me more like Christ? Jesus is the standard by which I evaluate every thought, every idea, Every philosophy, every opinion, every fad, every opinion, I, I, I hold it up against Jesus Christ. Why? Because God's purpose in your life is to make you like Jesus. We've talked about this many times. Why doesn't God just take you to heaven? Why did God put you on earth for 80 years and then take you to heaven? Why doesn't he just create you and take you to heaven? Why does he put you here on earth for 80 years? You ever thought about that? I mean, he could have just taken you straight to heaven. He put you here because life is a test and a trust and a temporary assignment. He wants you to practice the things you're going to do in heaven. And he wants you to become like Jesus Christ in character. That's going to involve some problems and going through the things Jesus went through. Now, um, life is tough. Everybody agree with that? Life is hard because nothing works on this planet correctly. Everything is broken. Every body is broken, every mind is broken, every relationship is broken. There is nothing perfect. There's no perfect marriage, no perfect economy, no perfect church, no perfect country. The weather is broken. We just saw that this week. The environment is broken, all because of sin. Heaven is going to be the place where we relax and have fun. Right now, God is more interested in your character than your comfort. And he wants you to grow up and become like Jesus. Now look at these verses. The Bible says, in your lives you must think and act like Jesus Christ. God says, I, Jesus is the model. And in the next verse, we take every thought captive. In other words, we test every thought. We test every thought so it's obedient to Christ. So we ask, it means that when I get an idea, the first thing I ask is, now would Jesus do this? Would Jesus think this? Would Jesus feel this way? Would Jesus act this way? Because he's the standard. He's the second filter. What would Jesus do is a good question. It's a good question. What, because I want to be like Christ. Now God gives a specific checklist. Because he said, well, what's Jesus like? Well, he's the fruit of the Spirit. God says Jesus is love and he's joy and he's peace and he's patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and meekness and self-control. But here's another passage I want us to look at. James chapter 3 gives us some things that Jesus is and some things that Jesus isn't. And if you get an idea, this is a good filter or grid to test the idea. If you harbor bitter envy 
and selfish ambition. Such wisdom, in other words, those thoughts, those ideas, those impressions, such, quote, wisdom, that's of the devil. You know where those ideas came from. The wisdom that comes from God, the, the ideas, the impressions, the thoughts that come from God, that wisdom is pure, it's peace-loving, it's considerate, it's submissive and full of mercy, it's impartial and sincere. Now notice, he says, here's a test. There are two things you can know an idea is not from God, and there's seven things you can know it is an idea that is from God. It's not God's wisdom and it is God's wisdom. First he says, it's not an idea from God if it's motivated by bitterness or envy. What do you mean by that? God says, if I get an idea on how to get even with somebody, how to get revenge with somebody, how to retaliate to somebody, I say, you know what, that person hurt me. How can I get them back? Oh, I know, I'm gonna get them good. This is a good idea. I know how I'll embarrass them. I know how I'll hurt them back. He says, that idea didn't come from God, that came from the devil. That's a satanic idea. It's a satanic idea. An idea to retaliate, to get even, to get revenge, those ideas do not come from God. And then he says also, if it's based on envy, if I go out and say, you know what? I'm going to buy this car so people will envy me. I'm going to buy this pair of shoes, this shirt. I'm going to buy this dress so people will be jealous of me. And they're going to look at me and they're going to envy and be jealous of me. God says, you didn't get that idea from me. It didn't come from me. Because he says, that's from the devil. That wisdom comes from Satan. And then he says also, if it's motivated by selfish ambition... He said, any idea motivated by selfish ambition does not come from God. God doesn't give you self-serving ideas. You come up with plenty of them yourself. He doesn't have to create them for you. You think them up all the time. And so, you know, if you say, I've got a great idea that's just going to make me filthy rich and everybody's going to worship me and everybody's going to be envious of me and jealous of me and I'm going to be the king of the heap and the top dog, and everybody else is going to be underneath me, and I'm going to be number one. God said, you didn't get that idea from me. Selfish ambition. God said, I didn't put you on earth to bless your selfish ambition. That's not what I put you on earth to do, to live for yourself. See, a lot of people try to use God for their own personal ambition. And they say, well, now God told me to do this, and that's the trump. How, how, do, you, how do you trump God? And, and, but where did that come from? He says it came from, from the devil. And he says, now, if you get an idea and it's from God, it's going to be one of these things. Pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, you know, uh, impartial and sincere. So let's look at these. First, if I get an idea, an impression from God is going to be pure. So if I get an impure thought, that one's obviously did not come from God. And it says, if I get an idea from God, it's going to be peace-loving. What does that mean? It means when God gives you an idea, it promotes harmony, not conflict. It promotes reconciliation, not division, not war, not separation. God is not going to give you an idea that's, that to create conflict in your family, to create conflict in your small group, to create conflict at work, to create conflict at church or somewhere else, to, to divide people into this side and that side. He says, 
Real wisdom is peace-loving. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They are the children of God. The people who build bridges, not build walls. And in life, you're either a bridge builder or you're a wall builder. He says, be peace-loving. Now, what does that mean? It means all gossip is satanic. It doesn't come from God. It's satanic. Why? Because the Bible says Satan is the accuser. He is the accuser of Christians. He is the condemner of Christians. His job is to put you down. His job is to condemn you, to criticize you. When you criticize, condemn, and gossip about others, you're just doing the devil's work for you. He says, thank you very much. All gossip is satanic. It's not from God. It's not pure. It's not peace-loving. And number three, it's not considerate. The third thing I ask is, I got this idea, would it hurt anybody else? Would it harm anybody else? Now, if I get an idea and it'll really help me, but it hurts everybody else, that idea isn't from God. If I get an idea and it's going to help me, but it's going to hurt everybody else in my family, it's going to hurt my wife and my kids, that idea did not come from God. It's real simple. Because wisdom from God is considerate. God is concerned about the effects on other people. And then it says, real wisdom, our ideas, impressions from God, are submissive. What does that mean? Submissive is humble. Submissive is teachable. Submissive is willing to have your idea checked by somebody else. What do you think? When you say to somebody else, what do you think about this idea? You are submitting that idea to them. And so to have an idea from God, if it's really from God, you're more than willing to say to your small group, what do you guys think about this? Guys, if you have an idea and you don't really want to tell your wife about this idea, it didn't come from God. Okay? Because you're not willing to submit it to them. What do you think about this, honey? Uh, uh, wives, if you get an idea and you don't really want to check it out with your husband, like, should I buy this? <laughs> Well, guess what? That's not a submissive attitude. Humble and teachable. If an idea is from God, the Bible says it is submissive. That means you're willing to have it tested. What do you guys think? And, and you ask around. And, you, you know, you ask your small group. And, you know, or you ask the people you're working with, your staff. You say, what do you guys think about this idea? You see, when people are prideful and they're unteachable and they are self-righteous, it is a dead giveaway that they're not hearing from God. Because the wisdom of God is pure, peace-loving, considerate, and submissive. Number five, it says, if I get an idea from God, an impression from God, it's full of mercy. What does that mean? It means if I get an idea from God, it's gonna make me more forgiving of you. It's gonna make me more gracious to you. I'm thinking, man, I've been forgiven. I better forgive everybody else. God has been gracious to me. I better be gracious to everybody else. I said, you know, God has cut me an awful lot of slack. I better cut my wife an awful lot of slack and my kids an awful lot of slack. Why? Because God has been gracious to me. True wisdom, wisdom that comes from God, not human wisdom, not demonic wisdom, but God's wisdom is full of mercy. You know, some people... This is the, the dead giveaway that they haven't heard from God. They think they have, 
but they haven't because their attitude proves it. When you find people who think they've heard from God and then they're judgmental and they're critical of everybody else and they're harsh and they're accusatory and they're always judging other people and other churches and other leaders and things like that, you know they have not heard from God. Now it just seems that all those people have congregated on the internet. And they have these things called blogs. Let me tell you something. It takes no intelligence to criticize. A fool, an idiot can criticize. Anybody, a, a, a baby can learn to criticize. You could teach a monkey how to criticize. But it takes maturity and wisdom to find the beauty in every person. It's very easy to look at somebody and go, She's this, she's this, she's this, she's this, she's that, he's that, he's that, he's that. And you look at all the service issues, and you can instantly think of five things you don't like about them. It takes no brains at all to do that. What takes intelligence, what takes wisdom, what takes maturity is to find the good, the beautiful in every person and in every situation. That takes maturity. Now, it's full of mercy. That means you're going to be gracious to other people if it's an idea from God. And then it says, it's wisdom from God is impartial and sincere. Now, this means you don't use what God tells you to manipulate other people. The words insincere and uh, uh, sincere and impartial are actually in Greek the words adikritos and anipokritos. We get the word hypocrite from adikritos and anipokritos. It means hypocrite. You know what hypocrite is? You wear a mask. You're a fake. You're phony. You're not authentic. You talk one way with this group and another way with this group. When you do that, you're not hearing from God. If it's an idea, it's right out front and it's the same with every person. And you don't try to manipulate or control other people by saying, well, now God told me. And then you go, well, how do you fight with God? I mean, that's, that's like the ultimate weapon. Well, God told me that, that. And you go, well, okay, I guess we better do it. No, that means if it's really from God, you don't do that. Now, Tom is going to come and teach us the third filter. The third way you test an impression is you ask, does my church family confirm it? Does my church family confirm it? You ask other mature believers, what do you think about this idea? You might check with God's word. You might check with uh, the other filters, but does my church family confirm it? Now, why is this one so important? Because you were not meant to live life all alone. You were meant to live life in relationship to other people. And so you go to others, other mature people who are trying to follow Christ as well, and you say, what do you think about this? This is why it's so important that you have a church family. Listen to what the Bible says about this in Ephesians 3.10. God's intent is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Through the church, God's wisdom is made known into all eternity and each one of us individually. He wants to use other people in your life, in my life. Now, what does this mean? This means that if God has genuinely spoken to you, other believers, other people who are following Christ are going to confirm it when you talk to them about it. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I can see that. This also means if you get an idea, an impression, something from God, and you think, maybe I should do this for this area of my life or for a relationship or for my business, and you have a resistance to telling anybody else about it, that should be a huge red flag. I don't want to tell anybody else. 
It's either, you know, I look at myself, I like to think things through and make plans, and if I'm resistant to telling somebody else, a lot of times it's just my pride. I just want to feel like I made it up all by myself. It's either my pride, or it could be, in the back of your mind, you know it's the wrong thing to do, and you know what they're going to say when you tell them, so you just don't want to tell them. You prep, you test the impression with other people because you realize that they're going to confirm it. If you get some idea, crazy idea, that you can't find any other person who's trying to follow Christ to confirm it, guess what? It's wrong. So you just throw it out, you drop it, and you realize I'm going to go on to the next idea. If mature believe, what I'm saying is this, if mature believers question it, you should question it too. Now, why does God want us to get advice from other people? Because he wants to save us from a lot of things. Next verse in your outline says, the wisdom of the righteous can save you. Now, what can it save you? It can save you a lot of time, waste of time and doing the wrong thing. It can save you a lot of pain, pain in making a mistake. I'd rather learn from somebody else's pain than have the pain myself. Can you agree with that one? No doubt about that. It can save you a lot of embarrassment. It can even save your reputation. Sometimes it can save your life. That's how important advice from other people can be in your life. One of the biggest reasons we mess up our lives is either we have no godly friends, no one else in our lives that we can talk to who's trying to follow God and live life the kind of way he's made for us to live, or, I've got some friends, but I just won't listen to them in this case. I just want to do what I want to do no matter what. So I've got to build godly relationships into my life. Now, this, this is why every one of us, we need something in our lives. You probably know what it is. We all need a small group. You know this already. In fact, most of you are in a small group, but maybe you were in one and you've gotten out of one. You've never been in one, and it's just it's the time. It's just the hassle. It's, if you're not in a small group... You're skating on thin ice, and you don't know where the thin ice is. You need some other people in your life that you can bounce some things off of. Relationships aren't just every once in a while I'll try to call. You've got to build them in on a regular basis. I can't tell you how many times in our small group someone has said something, and I wasn't even thinking to ask them about it, but just what they said, it caused me to think in a different direction, in a different way. That's the power of relationships, what God wants to do in our lives. You need a small group for feedback when it comes to hearing from God, impressions from God. Proverbs 11:14 says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So if you want to make fewer mistakes, then you get all the godly advice that you can get and you follow. With one big disclaimer on that one. There, there are some people, they've got an idea, and they go ask 10 people and they realize it's wrong, so then they go ask 99 people, just looking for one person who will agree with them. I'm not saying to do that. What you do is you just find some people that are trying to follow Christ, trying to live the kind of life God's given us to live, and you ask them, and you allow them to be a part of testing God's impressions in your life. Now, fourth test is a test that will save you an awful lot of money if you'll really listen to it. I have met so many well-meaning Christians who've gone off and started businesses, and then they failed. And they lost a lot of money from it because they didn't go through this fourth test. And uh, they, they would say, well, you know, it passed the first three. I want to start this business. Does it agree with the Bible? Yeah, it's not unbiblical. Uh, does it make me more like, more like Christ? Yes, I can become more like Christ in starting this business. Uh, does my small group confirm it? And the church family and other mature, they say, yeah, you'd be good at that. Try that. Uh, but they didn't really look at the fourth test. And the fourth test is this. Is it consistent with how God shaped me? 
Is this idea that I've got, this impression, this thought, is it consistent with how God has shaped me? Now, before you were born, God decided what he wanted you to do with your life. And then he formed you, he shaped you for that specific task. He doesn't want you to be somebody you're not. He doesn't want you to pretend to be a copy of somebody else. He made you to be you. We've talked about this often over the years. It's called your shape, S-H-A-P-E, your spiritual gift, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences. These are the five things that make you you. Now, this shape determines your significance, what you're supposed to do. Form follows function, function follows form, and the way God formed you determines what your function is. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Did you know that God created you to do good works? Why are you here on this earth? God created you to do good works, and they're unique to you. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Before you were even born, God knew what he wanted you to do, so he shaped you for that work. The Bible says we're his workmanship. That word in Greek is the word poema. It means poem. We get the word poem from it. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's poem. You are God's work of art. There's nobody like you. Quit trying to be somebody else. You are God's workmanship. He's, you are his handicraft. And he broke the mold when he made you. Now your shape reveals your purpose. You look at something and you see how it's shaped and you know what it's shaped for. This right here, this is shaped, looks like it's shaped to hold stuff, music. Okay, this right here, I look at this and I see the shape of this. Is this shape to sit on? I don't think so, okay? No, it's shaped to hold this, this guitar. Now, I look over there and I see a stool with a big round bottom and I think, hmm, that would fit my big round bottom, okay? And I think that is shaped to sit on. Now, I look at this microphone. Is this shaped to sit on? No, I wouldn't want to sit on that puppy. Okay, so shape determines purpose. You are shaped in a certain way. God has given you certain abilities and talents. If you have a musical ability and you're shaped in music, God expects you to use it. He never gives you a talent he, he wants you to waste. Now, we have 10 different campuses here at Saddleback. That means we need lots of musicians, both singers and instrumentalists. And you should be using that talent for the glory of God. On the other hand, if you can't carry a tune in a baggie, if you're tone deaf, please don't go on American Idol. I mean, you know, in that early stage when they have like the cattle call and thousands of people show up for American Idol, you, it's very obvious that a lot of those people has nobody who loved them. Because if they really loved them, they would say, don't embarrass yourself. Don't even try, okay? You're a prison singer. You're always behind a few bars. You never have the right key, okay? So, so just forget it. And obviously, they go out there and they make a mess of themselves, okay? Now, 
what you're good at is a good indication of what you should do with your life. Now, if you like hanging out with children, you love little children, or you like working with teenagers, then you should be involved in the student ministry and the children's ministry of Saddleback Church. Because we have thousands of kids and teenagers who desperately need adult mentors. They need you. And you should be involved in that. If you have a passion, a heart for them. On the other hand, you say, I'm not good with little kids. I'm not good with teenagers. Don't sweat it. There's a lot of other things you can do with your life. We're all good at different things. But the Bible says this in Romans 12, 6, in the back of your outline. God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well, which implies that there are certain things you don't do well. Okay? Nobody is good at everything. And that's why we need each other. And that's why we need a small group, because we, we help each other out. So in this question, you want to ask, what am I good at? What, what do I love to do? But more than what do I love to do, what am I really good at? You discover a lot of God's will by simply looking at how God has shaped you. Now, just because you love to do it doesn't mean you should do it. Uh, many of you know that before I was a pastor, I was a worship leader. I've played guitar since I was a kid. I had a band when I was in, in high school. And, uh, and, and I loved to sing. The only problem was nobody liked to listen to it. <laughs> so I discovered that just because I, I like to sing doesn't mean I should sing. Okay? So I quickly got wise and shifted gears. And when you're doing what you're good at doing, people go, hey, you're good at that. Okay? And, the, and they will tell you. Um, you, you it, if you get an impression from God that is totally opposite of what you are shaped to be, it didn't come from God. You could know it didn't, that idea did not come from God. It may have been something my parents wanted me to do. And I feel pressured to do it because they wanted me to do it. Or my wife wants me to do it. Or my husband wants me to do it. But I'm not shaped to do it. So don't do it. Because you, your shape determines God's will for your life. You know, a while back, I uh, was invited to speak on the USS Stennis, which is a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier out in the Pacific with 9,000 sailors on it. It's a floating city. And it was so cool. And they invited me out in the Pacific during the middle of war games. So I get on this cod plane, which is a little plane that has a tail hook on it, and you come flying in to this aircraft carrier, and the tail hook catches the, the, the cord, and you go from 355 miles an hour to zero in about two seconds. It's really cool. <laughs> the G-force on that beats all the things that Magic Mountain put together. It, I mean, it's a Z-ticket ride. I'm going, now that's cool. And so then I spoke to these, uh, these uh, sailors, 9,000 sailors, and, and uh, the Admiral, and had a great time there. And then, then when I'm flying off, you, you, they, they literally propel you like, a, like a, you know, a, a, a jet is just pushed off uh, very quickly, and, uh, and, and, and this, this thing just pushes the, this little cod plane, and you go, again, from zero to about 355, 50 miles an hour in about 400 yards. It just takes off, and it is so cool. <laughs> now, 
If I came home and I said to you, God has spoken to me. And I am to resign Saddleback Church as pastor, and I'm going to go become a top gun. Well, I'm not shaped to be a top gun. First place, I wouldn't fit in a cockpit. Okay? I'm too tall, I'm too big to fit in a cockpit. Second, I have almost zero hand-eye coordination. So you wouldn't want me flying one of those $21 billion jets. And I'm not shaped to do it. I may like to do it, but if I'm not shaped, I shouldn't do it. Does that make sense? Okay? Sometimes people get a dream, and they hear this thing, well, you can be anything you want to be. I'll tell you right now, that's just not true, friends. Okay? I mean, I don't care who Oprah or Tony Robbins or anybody tells you, you can be whatever you want to be. You're never going to be an opera singer. No matter how hard you try, you're never going to be Kobe. You're never going to shoot hoops like he does, okay? Because you are shaped in a certain way. You can be all God shaped you to be. And you better be happy with that. And that's where you're going to find fulfillment. Not trying to be somebody that you think you ought to be. God's leading will not contradict what he's gifted you to do. Okay, number five. The fifth test. Does it concern my responsibility? Does it concern my responsibility? Now, if it's not your responsibility, why should God talk to you about it? In other words... If God wants to talk to somebody else, he can talk directly to them. Every believer has direct access to God. He doesn't really need to go through you. And so stop trying to get God's word for somebody else. It, is it your responsibility? A good example of this, again, is going back to Peter. Peter, uh, at, at the end of Jesus' time on earth, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, one day uh, you're going to die for me. You're going to be martyred. They're going to put you in chains. And he's telling Peter in advance, you're going to die a horrible death because you're going to be martyred for me. Now, Peter isn't happy with that. He immediately looks at his buddy, fellow disciple John, and goes, what about him? <laughs> Human behavior. Human behavior. What about, what about John? And, and Jesus basically says, it's none of your beeswax. It's none of your business. Okay? And, and, and Jesus says this here in John 21, 22. Jesus says, if I want him, that's John, the, the other disciple, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. In other words, don't worry about what other people, don't try to figure out their lives. You follow me. What is that to you? Circle that. What is that to you? Now, Kay has what I consider to be a classic message on this text. And, and if you haven't heard it, you need to get it on tape and listen to it. And she, Kay calls this the witty principle. W-I-T-T-Y. What is that to you? And Kay says, you know, we always get in trouble when we ignore the witty principle. When we start trying to be the Holy Spirit for somebody else, when we start trying to be God for somebody else, and, and God is saying, hey, I'm talking to you. Are you listening? I'm talking to you. Not what I want to say to you to say to your husband. 
or to your wife, or your kids, or your parents, or your boss. What is that to you? You work on you. He said, don't judge other people. Stop being so judgmental, and you just get your own act together. What is he saying here? That when I want to hear God's voice, when I want to listen for an impression, I want to hear God speak, I need to listen for me. Not for somebody else who's in trouble, not for somebody else I want to change, but I need to listen for me. And when God speaks to you, he's going to speak to you about you in your current situation about things you need to change. Not somebody else. It's going to be your responsibility. It'll be relevant to you. You see, it's quite presumptuous to assume that you can hear God speak for somebody else. You need to be very, very careful about that. Here's what the Bible says, Romans 14. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? In other words, that person isn't your servant. That person's God's servant. To his own master, that's God. God is his master. To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. So you quit picking on him or her. Says, who are you to judge? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, you've all heard this phrase. God told me to tell you. <laughs> that phrase has done more damage than you could possibly imagine. God told me to tell you. I'd be very careful in that one. God told me to tell you you're going to get well. Oh, really? Are you sure of that? God told me to tell you what you ought to do. Really? Why didn't God just tell me directly? God told me to tell you what's wrong in your life. I remember, it was probably 20 years ago, after service, I was out on the patio and a woman came up to me and she says, Pastor Rick, God has revealed to me your secret sin. <laughs> I looked at her and said, well, I guess it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> and then I said, I looked her straight in the face. I said, ma'am, I don't believe you. And she was shocked. Like I was automatically just supposed to accept it because she said the word God. God had told me, and how would I dare question that God had told her? I said, I don't believe you. She said, why not? I said, because I just talked to him. <laughs> I said, in fact, I've been talking to him straight for all morning for about three hours. Because even when I'm preaching, I'm talking to God. I got a two-track mind, and I'm talking to God about the people while I'm talking to you about God. And I said, every service in this church, I'm backstage saying, God, I humble myself before you, and if there's any sin in my life that would hold back your blessings from your people, please reveal it to me right now, and I will clearly and quickly and instantly confess it and repent of it, because I don't want anything holding back blessing from my people. So show it to me. And you know what? He didn't show me anything, so I don't think you heard from him. I think she went to Calvary Chapel. I never saw her again after that. I mean, I, I, you know, some other church, you know, I'm just, I don't know. But uh, you need to be very, very careful that Satan can discredit the Lord's work 
when well-meaning, I mean, she was sincere, well-meaning Christians assume God's role. You are not the Holy Spirit. To your wife, to your kids, or to anybody else. He said, wait a minute. Does God ever speak to you, Rick, through other people? Of course he does. Does God ever speak to other people through you, Rick? Of course he does. But you must be very, very careful. And there are three guidelines I want you to write down. You must write these down. Because otherwise you're going to get into trouble on this one. Three guidelines. If God is going to speak to you about somebody else, you need to follow these three guidelines. Number one, be patient and pray. Don't immediately go and just blab it to that person when God has given you a word about somebody else. You wait, you be patient, you pray, you make sure you heard from God, and you give God a chance to speak to them directly first. All we are saying is give God a chance. Okay. Give him a chance to, to speak directly. In fact, sometimes God will tell you what he intends to tell somebody else so that you can pray for them so that they will be receptive to receiving it when God tells them directly. He doesn't have any intention of you saying it anyway, but he's telling you so you can pray for them. And God will give you an insight into somebody else's life and you can pray for them and say, God, may they be receptive when you tell them that. Okay? So you be, you be patient, you pray, you don't be in a hurry. Second thing, you need to understand, God will use you to confirm what he's already said to them. Now that happens all the time. Okay, that happens all the time. Sometimes God will tell you something, and you will say it to another person, and they'll go, you know, I've been feeling that. And I, I just wasn't sure that it was God. But I was, I was thinking about that, and I felt like God was telling me to do that. And often, God will use a human being to confirm in another person's life what he has already said to them directly. It's, yeah, you did hear me correctly. It, this happens to me all the time. And I'll, I'll say things to somebody, and they go, oh, you know what? I really felt like God was telling me that, and that's just a confirmation. Th that's very, very common. Uh, you know, almost a year uh, before I, well, I wasn't quite that long, but it was a long time before I took Kay out on our first date, God told me I was going to marry her. I hadn't even dated her. Now, when I was got that impression from God, God said, you're going to marry that girl, I immediately doubted it for four reasons. One, God had never before or never since spoken to me that clearly. I'm saying never before and never since spoke me that clear. Number two, I wasn't in love with her. Three, she wasn't in love with me. Four, she was in love with another guy. Okay? So, God says, you're going to marry that girl. I made no attempt to even date her. I just filed it in the back of my mind. Now, I didn't immediately go to her and say, God's told you to marry me. No, that's beating people over the head. In fact, I never told her that until after we were married. Because love is a choice. And, and, and you can't beat people. That's not a dating technique. God told you to date me. Okay, God told me to tell you to date me. Yeah, right, okay. 
Um, no, that doesn't work that way. But God told me that. It was about six months later. I had a partner, a prayer partner named Danny. And uh, while we were in college, every morning we would get up at 5 a.m. and we would go out to the baseball field of the university we were going to and we would kneel down in the dugout and we would pray from about 5 a.m. to about 6 a.m. and we did it for an entire year or the, the semester of, you know, the, the nine months of school. And uh, this is about six months later. One day we're praying in the morning and all of a sudden Danny stops and in the middle of his prayer he looks over and he goes, Rick, you may think this is weird, but I just had this impression that you're going to marry Kay Lewis. And I looked at him and said, oh, God told me that six months ago. Keep praying. <laughs> really? And I just, it was just kind of a matter of fact. Okay? Now, what was God doing there? He was confirming in my heart, yeah, you really did hear from me. You really, you really did hear from me. And God was doing that. Now, that wasn't the confirmation of Kay. That was the confirmation for me. Okay? And God had to do whatever he wanted to do in, in her life. So you got to be patient and pray. you got to realize that it's usually going to be for confirmation. Third thing, write this down. God usually uses you without you being conscious of it. When God wants to speak through you to another person, it's usually going to be done in a way that you don't even know he spoke through you. And that is so cool. And that happens all the time. You're at a small group and somebody will say something and they don't even realize what they're saying, but it hits you like an arrow straight to your heart. And you go, whoa, that was meant for me. And God just spoke to you through the mouth of somebody in your small group. That's why if you're not in a small group, you're missing that. You're missing that. You don't have anybody who's speaking in, into you. Godly people who can speak into your life. But that person doesn't even know that they did it. I mean, people tell me all the time, Pastor Rick, when you teach, I feel like you're speaking directly to me. I feel like you've been reading my mail. I'm not reading your mail. I'm not even reading your email. Okay? All I'm doing is I'm getting up and teaching the Word of God, and one thought will go and hit somebody here, and another one will hit somebody over here, and somebody over and I'm not even aware of it. But you're aware of it because God wanted it for you. And he had me say something that he wanted you to hear, even though I didn't know what it was that you needed to hear. Now that happens all the time. Romans 14 says this about concerning my own responsibility. We will all be judged one day, not by each other's standards, thank God, or even our own standards, but by the judgment of God, because God is just, right, fair, and true, and no one's going to say you're not fair. It is to God alone that we will have to answer for our actions. Now, number six, Tom's going to come and teach on these last two uh, filters. Is it convicting rather than condemning? That's the sixth text. Tom's going to explain this. Is it convicting rather than condemning? If you miss this one, the difference between being convicting and condemning, you're going to find yourself, even though it passes all the other tests, constantly making decisions because you thought you heard God's voice, but really it's this voice of condemnation. So what's the difference between
between conviction that the Bible talks about where God convicts us when we've done something wrong so we can get right and this general feeling of condemnation. Conviction comes from God. He gives it to us to correct us. So I say something to one of my kids that I shouldn't have said or to my husband, my wife. God says, you shouldn't talk like that. That's conviction. And he does it to correct us because he loves us. Because he wants us to live the right kind of way and enjoy the kind of life that he made us to live. He wants to develop our character. And conviction is something that God is just saying in my life, this needs to change. So I know what I need to change. On the other hand, condemnation comes from Satan. And it's just to criticize. It's just to accuse you. It's motivated by Satan's hatred front for you. And it just gives you this overall feeling, I'm a jerk. I'm worthless. Why did I do that? If you've ever, and I think we've all felt this way, just felt vaguely guilty, just this cloud, this dark cloud of guilt hanging over your head, but you couldn't put your finger on it, you just felt bad all the time, that is, that is condemnation. And when you feel that way, that's not from God. If you feel, I'm worthless, I'm useless, I'm nothing, I'm not worth a thing, that is not God's voice. Second part of Rick Warren's message, how to hear from God. Making decisions because you thought you've heard God's voice, but really it's this voice of condemnation. So what's the difference between conviction that the Bible talks about where God convicts us when we've done something wrong so we can get right, and this general feeling of condemnation? Conviction comes from God. He gives it to us to correct us. So I say something to one of my kids that I shouldn't have said, or to my husband, my wife, God says, you shouldn't talk like that. That's conviction. And he does it to correct us because he loves us, because he wants us to live the right kind of way and enjoy the kind of lives that he made us to live. He wants to develop our character. And conviction is something that God is just saying in my life, this needs to change. So I know what I need to change. On the other hand, condemnation comes from Satan. And it's just to criticize. It's just to accuse you. It's motivated by Satan's hatred front for you, and it just gives you this overall feeling, I'm a jerk, I'm worthless, why did I do that? If you've ever, and I think we've all felt this way, just felt vaguely guilty, just this cloud, this dark cloud of guilt hanging over your head, but you couldn't put your finger on it, you just felt bad all the time, that is, that is condemnation. And when you feel that way, that's not from God. If you feel, I'm worthless, I'm useless, I'm nothing, I'm not worth a thing, that is not God's voice. How do I know that? Look at this next verse in your outline, Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. God does not speak that way. He does not speak with a voice of condemnation. So anytime you feel that way, you can know that's not God's voice. And I know a lot of people, to try to get rid of this general feeling of condemnation, they'll do all kinds of crazy things, thinking somehow you're following God's voice. It is never His voice. In fact, you might write down in your outline these words, God never attacks my value. He never attacks your value. Now, will He point out your sin? Oh, yeah, of course. But he doesn't attack your value. You're his child. You're the one that he loves. That's not the way that God speaks. Revelation 3, verse 19. Here's how God speaks in my life. Here's how God speaks in your life. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell their faults, and I convict, and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. 
changing your mind and attitude. That's how God speaks. Condemnation is like this dark cloud of guilt. When God speaks, it's like a pinpoint of light. He tells you exactly, this is what's wrong, and this is how you change it. So now let's change it together. That's how he speaks in my life. That's how he speaks in your life. He tells you the solution, and then as soon as you confess, as soon as you change, that feeling of conviction, it goes away. It doesn't last for the rest of eternity. Condemnation is general, it's vague, and it never goes away. Conviction is specific, it's clear, and it goes away as soon as you respond to it. Oh, let me give you another picture of this. It's like, it's like the court system. In, in our court system, you've seen all these courtroom dramas, or some of you are in court every day of your life. In our court system, there's really two stages if you're convicted or condemned. First you have the, first you have the stage where you have all the sentencing going on and you have the conviction. You are guilty. And then after that does come the sentencing from the judge and you are condemned to this certain punishment. That's our court system. God's system is not the same. God's system doesn't have two parts, it has three parts. First comes the conviction, the feeling, I've done something wrong. I know I shouldn't have gone that way. And then secondly, here's the good news. Jesus takes the condemnation. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus died on the cross because he loves us, and he took our condemnation for us. And so then third, when I recognize that, I am forgiven, I am set free. That's God's system of justice. It's an awesome system of justice. It's a good news God. And so when I'm convicted and I realize I've done something wrong, how long should that feeling that I have of conviction last in my life? It should last only, it should last only as long as it takes me to repent. If it takes me a month to repent, I'm going to feel conviction for a month. If it takes me a year to repent, I'm going to feel it for a year. But if immediately, as soon as God says it, I respond to it, then I know, okay, he's speaking to me. You just recognize so many times we mistake our low self-esteem for God's voice. The Bible says this about Satan. Satan is the accuser of believers, Revelation 12, verse 10. He wants to accuse you. You've got to understand how Satan works with your sin. When it comes to sin, before you sin, Satan minimizes it. Have you noticed this? And then after you sin, he maximizes it. Before you sin, he says, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. Don't worry about it. And then the minute you sin, you hear Satan's voice saying, how could you do that and call yourself a Christian? How in the world could, you are the worst slime in the universe that you did that. That's how he speaks. So what do I do? I realize that is the voice of Satan and not of God. So I'm going to look to God, and when I feel conviction, I'm going to immediately respond. Is it conviction, convicting or condemning? That's one of the tests. And then you come to the seventh test. And that test is, do I feel, do I sense God's peace about it? Do I sense God's peace about it? If you feel pressure, if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel confused, about a decision that you're trying to make. It might be about money. It might be about some ministry in your life. It might be about your kids. And you're constantly feeling confused. One of the reasons for that is you're caught up in yourself probably and not in God's voice. The Bible says this about God. God is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. He is not the author of confusion. So if I'm feeling confused, guess what? It's some other voice. It's not God's voice speaking in my life. Those of you that are parents, do you want 
Do you want your kids to feel pressured or confused when you ask them to do something? No, you want them to understand what to do and then respond and do it. And God's the perfect father, so he wants us to understand what he's asking us to do. Do I sense God's peace about it in my life? Now, the, the only time pressure could be legitimate is if God's told me to do something and I keep saying no. Then the pressure does build. But there's always peace when I say yes to what he's asked me to do. Satan wants to drive us compulsively, and God wants to draw us compassionately. Satan wants to drive you compulsively. I think we've all got some OCD in us. And Satan wants to take advantage of our compulsions and use those to drive our lives. But God, instead, he wants to draw us compassionately. He's like a good father. He's like a good shepherd. He wants to draw our lives. Do I sense God's peace about it? I've always loved what Peter Lord used to say. 90% of what God wants to say to you is encouragement. And if all you ever hear from God is negative messages, something's wrong. The wires have been crossed. Do I sense God's peace about it as I'm listening to him? If you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do, and you feel like God's told you to do something, and increasing anxiety is happening because of what you feel that he's told you to do, something's crossed up. Because the Bible says this in Philippians 4, 6-7. Here's how, how God speaks. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. If you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. When God speaks, I learn from him because I have his peace in my life. But notice in that verse it says, if you do this, you will have God's peace. It's not just a matter of hearing from him. It's also a matter of acting on what you hear. In fact, I, I love this next verse. Proverbs 22, verse 17 tells us the three things we need to do as we hear God's voice, hear God's impressions. Listen to this wise advice. Follow it closely, for it will do you good. And then you can pass it along to other people. So it's not just hearing from God. You do these three things. First, you listen, you hear it. But then you follow it, you do what it says, and then you pass it on to other people. Yesterday, when I was studying for this message, I was in my office and uh, Cassidy, my five-year-old granddaughter, walked in. She said, what are you doing, Papa? And I said, I'm preparing to teach tomorrow at church. And she said, uh, what are you going to teach on? And I said, how to hear God speak to you. She said, oh, I already know that. <laughs> I said, oh, you do? She said, yes. I said, does God speak to you? She, she, said, she said, all the time. I said, how does he speak to you, Cassie? He said, in my mind. Why is it so hard for adults and so easy for kids? Why do we make it so complicated? Because of all of our doubts and our fears and our skepticisms and all of the mess that we get into our minds. It's why Jesus said, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. Because a little child is open. Oh God, whatever you want to say to me. And she could hear God very clearly. And she didn't have any problem with that at five years of age. Now, what is it? What's the problem? If you could hear God clearly in the past, but it's not so clear anymore. I mean, 
the transmission has gotten fuzzy. The lines are messed up and jammed. The message is muted. It's not getting through. What's the problem if you could hear God clearly in the past, but you can't now? Here's the problem. You have allowed sin to come between you and God. And you need to pull out that blockage, and then you'll be able to hear him clear again. It may be a relationship you need to let go of. It may be a habit you need to let go of. It may be a hurt that you've held onto and said, I am not going to let that person off the hook. And that has created a barrier between you and God. And God can't hear your prayers and you can't hear him speak to you. And what you need to do is confess that area, that blockage, say, God, that's wrong. And I want to confess it. And I want to change. I want to turn away from my my sin. I want to turn back to you. I want to be able to hear from you. And you'll be able to hear him again. What if I've never, ever heard God speak to me in my life? I've never felt it. Then you need to get to know Jesus Christ. You need to begin a relationship. You may have been in church all of your life. You can have churchianity without Christianity. You can have religion without a relationship. You can know all about God and not really know Him. Now we can settle that one right now. The Bible says this, the last verse in your outline. He who belongs to God hears what God says. That's the mark that you belong to God. You can hear Him. The reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. You've never been saved. You've never been born again. You've never stepped across the line in faith. You've never put your total life in his hands. You've come with your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend. You may have come to Saddleback for years, but you've never began that relationship. And this is the day to do it. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And if you've never heard God speak to you, you need to begin a relationship to him today. You could say something like this in your heart. Just follow me and say, me too, God. Dear God, I want to know you. And I want to hear your voice. And I want to know what you want me to do with my life. Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all. But I thank you that you love me. That you made me. That you shaped me for a purpose. That you forgive me and you take away my condemnation. Show me the things in my life that are keeping me from hearing you. I want to confess them and I want to get rid of them. And I want to follow you and trust you from this day forward. I ask you to accept me into your family. And help me to hear your voice and feel your presence. The rest of you who've you've already opened your life to Christ, you join me in this prayer. Say, dear God, I, I want to hear you when you talk to me this week. And more than that, I want to do what you tell me to do. I'm choosing your way in advance. And I want to pass on what you tell me to others 
so I can grow. Help me to use these seven tests this week as I listen to you. In your name I pray. Amen. God is the one who made all things, and all things are for His glory. He wanted to have many children share His glory. Hebrews 10. See how very much our Heavenly Father loves us, for He allows us to be called His children, and we really are. 1 John 3, 1. You were formed for God's family. God wants a family and He created you to be part of it. This is God's second purpose for your life, which He planned before you were born. The entire Bible is the story of God building a family who will love Him, honor Him, and reign with Him forever. It says, His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave Him great pleasure. Because God is love, He treasures relationships. His very nature is relational. And he identifies himself in family terms, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity is God's relationship to himself. It's the perfect pattern for relational harmony, and we should study its implications. God has always existed in loving relationship to Himself, so He has never been lonely. He didn't need a family. He desired one, so He devised a plan to create us, bring us into His family, and share with us all He has. This gives God great pleasure. The Bible says, it was a happy day for him when he gave us our new lives through the truth of his word and we became, as it were, the first children in his new family. When we place our faith in Christ, God becomes our father. We become his children. Other believers become our brothers and sisters and the church becomes our spiritual family. The family of God includes all believers in the past, the present, and the future. Every human being was created by God, but not everyone is a child of God. The only way to get into God's family is by being born again into it. You become part of the human family by your first birth. 
but you become a member of God's family by your second birth. God has given us the privilege of being born again so that we are now members of God's own family. The invitation to be part of God's family is universal. But there is one condition, faith in Jesus. The Bible says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Your spiritual family is even more important than your physical family because it will last forever. Our families on earth are wonderful gifts from God. But they are temporally and fragile, often broken by divorce, distance, growing old, and inevitably death. On the other hand, our spiritual family, our relationship to other believers, will continue throughout eternity. It is a much stronger union, a more permanent bond than blood relationships. Whenever Paul would stop to consider God's eternal purpose for us together, he would break out into praise. When I think of the wisdom and scope of his plan, I fall down on my knees and pray to the Father of all the great family of God, some of them already in heaven and some down here on earth. The moment you were spiritually born into God's family, you were given some outstanding birthday gifts. Ready? The family name, the family likeness, family privileges, family intimate access, and the family inheritance. It tells us, my God will meet your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. As children of God, we get to share in the family fortune. Here on earth, we are given the riches of His grace, kindness, patience, glory, wisdom, power, and mercy. But in an eternity, we will inherit even more. Paul said, I want you to realize what a rich and glorious inheritance he has given to his people. What does that inheritance include? First, we will get to be with God forever. Second, we will be completely changed to be like Christ. Third, we will be free from all pain, death, and suffering. Fourth, We will be rewarded and reassigned positions of service. Faith, we will get to share in Christ's glory. <clears throat> what an inheritance. Fifth, we will get to share in Christ's glory. You are far richer than you realize. The Bible says, God has reserved a priceless inheritance for his children. It is kept in heaven for you pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. This means that your eternal inheritance is priceless, pure, permanent, and protected. No one can take it from you. It can't be destroyed by war. 
a poor economy, or a natural disaster. This eternal inheritance, not retirement, is what you should be looking forward to and working for. Paul says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Retirement is a short-sighted goal. You should be living in light of eternity. Healthy families have pride. Members are not ashamed to be recognized as a part of the family. Sadly, I have met many believers who have never publicly identified themselves with their spiritual family as Jesus commanded by being baptized. Baptized is not an optional ritual to be delayed or postponed. It signifies your inclusion in God's family. It publicly announces to the world, I am not ashamed to be a part of God's family. Have you been baptized? Jesus commanded this beautiful act for all in his family. He told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For years I wondered why Jesus' great commission gives the same prominence to baptism as it does to the great task of evangelism and identification. Why is baptism so important? Then I realized it. It's because it symbolizes God's second purpose for your life. Participating in the fellowship of God's eternal family. Baptism is pregnant with meaning. Your baptism declares your faith, shares Christ's burial and resurrection, symbolizes your death on your old life, and announces your new life in Christ. It is also a celebration of your inclusion in God's family. Your baptism is a physical picture of a spiritual truth. It represents what happens the moment God brought you into his family. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we all have been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit, and we all have received the same spirit. Baptism doesn't make you a member of God's family. Only faith in Christ does that. Baptism shows you are part of God's family, like a wedding ring. It is a visible reminder of an inward commitment made in your heart. It is an act of initiation, not something you put off until you are spiritually mature. The only biblical condition is that you believe. In the New Testament, people were baptized as soon as they believed. At Pentecost, 3,000 were baptized the same day they accepted Christ. (laughs) Elsewhere, an Ethiopian leader was baptized on the spot when he was converted. 
and Paul and Silas baptized a Philippian jailer and his family at midnight. There are no delays baptism in the New Testament. If you haven't been baptized as an expression of your faith in Christ, do so as soon as possible, as Jesus commanded. The Bible says, Jesus and the people he makes holy all belong to the same family. That is why he isn't ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Let that amazing truth sink in. You are part of God's family, and because Jesus makes you holy, God is proud of you. The words of Jesus are unmistakable. Jesus pointed to his disciples and said, They, these are my brothers, my mother. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Being included in God's family is the highest honor and the greatest privilege you will ever receive. Nothing else comes close. Whenever you feel unimportant, unloved, or insecure, remember to whom you belong. We who are many forms one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Following Christ includes belonging, not just believing. We are members of his body, the church. C.S. Lewis noted that the word membership is of Christian origin, but the world has emptied it of its original meaning. Stores offer discounts to members, and advertisers use member names to create mailing lists. In churches, membership is often reduced to simple adding your name to a role with no requirement or expectation. To Paul, being a member of the church meant being a vital organ of a living body, an indispensable interconnected part of the body of Christ. We need to recover and practice the biblical meanings of membership. The church is a body, not a building, an organism, not an organization. For the organs of your body to fulfill their purpose, they must be connected to your body. The same is true for you as part of Christ's body. You were created for a specific role, but you will miss the second purpose of your life if you're not attached to a living local church. You discover your role in life through your relationship with others. The Bible tells us each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body, but as a chopped off finger or cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we?
It is if an organ is somehow severed, severed from its body, it will shrivel and die. It cannot exist on its own, and neither can you. Disconnect and cut off from the lifeblood of the local body, your spiritual life will wither and eventually cease to exist. This is why the first symptom of spiritual decline is usually inconsistent attendance at worship service and other gatherings of believers. Whenever we become careless about fellowship, everything else being to, begins to slight too. Members in the family of God is neither inconsequential nor something to be casually ignored. The church is God's agenda for the world. Jesus said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The church is indestructible and will exist for eternity. It will outlive the universe and so will your role in it. The person who says, I don't need the church is either arrogant or ignorant. The church is so significant that Jesus died on the cross for it. Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. I can't imagine saying to Jesus, I love you, but I dislike your wife, or I accept you, but I reject your body. But we do this whenever we dismiss or demean or complain about the church. Instead, God commands us to love the church as much as Jesus does. The Bible says, love your spiritual family. Sadly, many Christians use the church but don't love it. Except for a few important instances referring to all believers throughout history, almost every time the word church is used in the biblical, it refers to a local, visible congregation. The New Testament assumes membership in a local congregation. The only Christians not members of a local fellowship were those under church discipline who have been removed from the fellowship because of gross public sin. The Bible says a Christian without a church home is like an organ without a body, a sheep without a flock, or a child without a family. It is an unnatural state. The Bible says, You belong in God's household with every other Christian. Today's culture of independence, individualism has created many spiritual orphans, bunny believers who hop around from one church to another without any identity, accountability, or commitment. Many believe one can be a good Christian without joining or even attending a local church. But God will strongly disagree. The Bible offers many compelling reasons for being committed and active in a local fellowship. A church family identifies you as a genuine believer. I can't claim to be following Christ if I am not committed to any specific group of disciples. Jesus said, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. When we come together in love as a church family from different backgrounds, race, and social status, it 
is powerful witness to the world. You are not the body of Christ on your own. You need others to express that together, not separate. We are his body. Experiencing Life Together, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. First scripture is chapter 18, by the way. First scripture is, each one of you is part of the body of Christ, and you were chosen to live together in peace. Colossians 3.15. And the second scripture is, how wonderful it is, how pleasant for God's people to live together in harmony. Psalms 133.1 How wonderful it is, how wonderful, how pleasant for God's people to live together in harmony. Psalms 133.1 Life is meant to be shared. God intends for us to experience life together. The Bible calls this share experience fellowship. Today, however, the world has lost most of its biblical meaning. Fellowship now usually refers to casual conversations, socializing food, and fun. The question, where do you fellowship, means where do you attend church? Stay after for fellowship usually means wait for refreshments. Real fellowship is so much more than just showing up at services. It is experiencing life together. Again, it is experiencing life together. It includes unselfish, loving, honest, sharing, practical serving, sacrificial giving, sympathetic, comforting, and all of the other. One another commands found in the New Testament. When it comes to fellowship, size matters. Smaller is better. You can worship a crowd, but you can't fellowship with one. Once a group becomes larger than about 10 people, Someone stops participating, usually the quietest person, and a few people will dominate the group. Jesus ministered in the context of a small group of disciples. He could have chosen more, but he knew 12 is about the maximum size you can have in a small group if everyone is to participate. The body of Christ, like your own body, is really a collection of many small cells. The life of the body of Christ, like your body, is contained in the cell. For this reason, every Christian needs to be involved in a small group within their church. Whether it is a home fellowship group, a Sunday school class, or a Bible study, this is where the real community takes place, not in the big gatherings. If you think of your fellowship as a ship, the small groups are the lifeboats attached to it. God has made an incredible promise about small groups of, of believers, small groups of gatherers. For wherever two or three are have to gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Unfortunately, even being in a small group does not guarantee you will experience real community. Many Sunday school teachers and small groups are stuck in superficiality and have no clue <coughs> As to what it is, what it's life to experience genuine fellowship. 
What is the difference between real and fake fellowship? In real fellowship, people experience authenticity. Authentic fellowship. It's not superficial. Surface level chit chat. It is genuine hard hearts, sometimes gut level sharing. It happens when people get honest about who they are and what is happening in their lives. They share their hurts, reveal their feelings, confess their failures, disclose their doubts, admit their fears, acknowledge their weaknesses, and ask for help in prayer. Authenticity, authenticity is, is the act of opposite of what you find in some churches. Instead of an atmosphere of honesty and humility, there's pretending, role-playing, politicking, and superficial politeness, but shallow conversations. People wear masks, keep their guards up, and act as if everything is rosy in their lives. Their attitudes are the death of a real fellowship. It is only as we can become open about our lives that we experience real fellowship. The Bible says, if we live in the light of God is in the light, we can share fellowship with each other. If we live in the light as God is in the light, we can share fellowship with each other. If we say we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves. The world thinks intimacy occurs in the dark, but God says it happens in the light. Darkness is used to hide our hurts, faults, fears, failures, and flaws. But in the light, we bring them all into the open and admit who we really are. Of course, being authentic requires both courage and humility. It means facing our fears of exposure, rejection, and being hurt again. Why would anyone take such a risk? Because it is the only way to grow spiritually and be emotionally healthy. The Bible says, Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and heal. We can only grow by taking risks, and the most difficult risk of all is to be honest with ourselves and with others. In real fellowship, people experience mutuality. Mutuality is the art of giving and receiving. It's depending on each other. The Bible says the way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together. As a church, every part dependent on every other part. Mutuality is the heart of fellowship, building reciprocal relationships, sharing responsibilities, and helping each other. Paul said, I want us to help each other with the faith we have. Your faith will help me, and my faith will help you. All of us are more consistent in our faith when others walk with us and encourage us. The Bible commands mutual accountability, mutual encouragement, mutual serving, and mutual honoring. Over 50 times in the New Testament, we are commanded to do different tasks to one another. And each other, the Bible says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. You are not responsible for everyone in the body of Christ, but you are responsible to them. God expects you to do whatever you can to help them. In real fellowship, people experience sympathy. 
Sympathy is not giving advice or offering quick cosmetic help. Sympathy is entering in and sharing the pain of others. Sympathy says, I understand what you're going through and what you feel is neither strange nor crazy. Today, some call this empathy, but the biblical word is sympathy. The Bible says, as holy people, be sympathetic, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. Sympathy means two fundamental human needs. The need to be understood and the need to have your feelings validated. Every time you affirm someone's feelings, you build fellowship. The problem is that we are often in so much of a hurry to fix things that we don't have time to sympathize with people or we're preoccupied with our own hurts. Self-pity dries up sympathy for others. There are different levels of fellowship, and each is appropriate at different times. The simplest level of fellowship are the fellowship of sharing and the fellowship of studying God's Word together. A deeper level is the fellowship of serving, as when we minister together on mission trips or mercy projects, the deepest, most intense level is the fellowship of suffering. Where we enter into each other's pain and grief and carry each other's burdens, the Christian who understands this level bets are those around the world who are being persecuted, despised, and often martyred for their faith. The Bible commands, share each other's troubles and problems, and in this way, obey you obey the law of Christ. It is in times of deep crisis, grief, and doubts that we need each other most. When circumstance crushes us to point that our faith falters, that's when we need believing friends the most. We need a small group of friends to have faith in God for us and to pull us through. In small groups, the body of Christ is real and tangible, even when God seems distant. That is what Job desperately needed during his suffering. He cried out, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. In real fellowship, people experience mercy. Fellowship is a place of grace where mistakes aren't rubbed in, but rubbed out. Fellowship happens when mercy wins over justice. We all need mercy because we all stumble and fall and require help getting back on track. We need to offer mercy to each other and be willing to receive it from each other. God says, when people sin, you should forgive and comfort them so they won't give up in despair. You can't have fellowship without forgiveness. God warns, never hold grudges because bitterness and resentment always destroy fellowship. Bitterness and resentment, because we're imperfect, sinful people, we invariably hurt each other when we're together for a long enough time. Sometimes we hurt each other intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, but either way, it takes massive amount of mercy and grace to create them and maintain fellowship. The Bible says, you must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Shoot. God's mercy to us 
is the motivating for showing mercy to others. Remember, you will never be asked to forgive someone else more than God has already forgiven you. Whenever you are hurt by someone, you have a choice to make. Will I use my energy and emotions for retaliation or for resolution? You can't do both. Many people are reluctant to show mercy because they don't understand the difference between trust and forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of the past. Trust has to do with future behavior. Forgiveness must be immediately, whether or not a person asks for it. Trust must be rebuilt over time. Trust requires a track record. If someone hurts you repeatedly, you are commanded by God to forgive them instantly, but you are not expected to trust them immediately. And you are not expected to continue allowing them to hurt you. They must prove they have changed over time. The best place to trust is within the supportive context of a small group that offers both encouragement and accountability. There are many other benefits you will experience in being a part of a small group committed to real fellowship. It is an essential part of your Christian life that you cannot overlook. For over 2,000 years, Christians have regularly gathered in small groups for fellowship. If you've never been a part of a group or class like this, you really don't know what you're missing. In the next chapter, we will look at what it takes to create this kind of community with other believers. But I hope this chapter has made you hungry to experience the authenticity, mutuality, sympathy, and mercy of a real fellowship. You were created for a community. Think about my purpose, day 18. Points to ponder. I need others in my life, yes. The verse to remember is Galatians 6, 2. Share each other's troubles and problems, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Questions to ponder. What one step can I take today to connect with another believer at a more genuine, hard-heart level? For me, that's to pray for them ahead of time. Psalms 23, if they're having trouble. And then, when I see them, high-five and give them that spiritual uh, happiness and acknowledgement. And sympathize with them. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Community You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. James 3.18 They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Acts 2.42 Community requires commitment. Only the Holy Spirit can create real fellowship between believers. But he cultivates it with the choices and commitments we make. Paul points out this dual responsibility when he says, You are joined together with peace through the Spirit to make every effort to continue together in this way. It takes both God's power and our effort to produce a loving Christian community. Unfortunately, many people grow up in families with unhealthy relationships, so they lack the 
relational skills needed for real fellowship. They must be taught how to get along with and relate to others in God's family. Fortunately, the New Testament is filled with instructions how to share life together. Paul wrote, I am writing these things to you so you will know how to live in the family of God. That family is the church. If you're tired of fake fellowship and you would like to cultivate real fellowship in a loving community in your small group, Sunday school class, and church, or 12-step program, you need to make some tough choices and take some risks. Cultivating community takes honesty. You will have to care enough to lovingly speak the truth, even when you would rather gloss over a problem or ignore an issue. While it is much easier to remain silent when others around us are harming themselves or others with a sinful pattern, it is not the loving thing to do. Most people have no one in their lives who loves them enough to tell them the truth, even when it's painful. So they continue in self-destructive ways. Often we know what needs to be said to someone, but our fears prevent us from saying anything. Many fellowships have been sabotaged by fear. No one has the courage to speak up in the group while a member's life fell apart. The Bible tells us, Speak the truth in love, because we can't have community without candor, Solomon said. An honest answer is a sign of true friendship. Sometimes this means caring enough to loving comfort one who is sinning or is being tempted to sin. Paul says, Brethren and sisters, if someone in your group does something wrong, you who are spiritual should go to that person and gently help him right again. Many church fellowships and small groups remain superficial because they are afraid of conflict. Whenever an issue pops up that might cause tension or discomfort, it is immediately glossed over in order to preserve a false sense of peace. Mr. Don't Rock the Boat jumps in and tries to smooth everyone's ruffled feathers. The issue is never resolved and everyone lives with an underlying frustration. Everyone knows about the problem. No one talks about it openly. This creates a sick environment of secrets where gossip thrives. Paul's solution was straightforward. No more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we are all connected to each other. After all, when you lie to each other, you end up lying to yourself. Real fellowship, whether in marriage and friendship or your church, depends on frankness and fact. The tunnel of conflict is the past, past, passageway to intimacy in any relationship. Until you care enough to confront and resolve the underlying barriers, you will never grow close to each other. When conflict is handled correctly, we grow closer to each other by facing and resolving our differences. The Bible says, in the end, people appreciate frankness more than flattery. Frankness is not a license to say anything you want, wherever and whenever you want. It is not rudeness. The Bible tells us there is right time and a right way to do everything. Thoughtless words leave lasting wounds. God tells us to speak to each other in the church as loving family. Never use harsh, harsh words when you correct an older man. But talk to him as he were your father. 
Talk to your younger men as if they were your brothers. Older women as if they were your mothers, and younger women as if they were your sisters. Sadly, thousands of fellowship have been destroyed by a lack of honesty. Paul has to rebuke the Corinthian church for their passive code of silence in allowing immorality in the fellowship. Since no one had the courage to confront it, he said, you must not simply look the other way and hope it goes away on its own. Bring it out in the open and deal with it. Better devastation and embarrassment than damnation. You pass it off as a small thing, but it is anything but that. You shouldn't act as if everything is just fine with one of your Christian companions is promiscuous or crooked. Is flip with God or rude to friends? Gets drunk and becomes greedy and predatory. You can't just go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. I'm not responsible for what the outsiders do, but don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers or 12-steppers? Cultivating community takes humility. Self-importance, smugness, and stubbornness pride destroy fellowship faster than anything else. Again, self-importance, smugness, and stubborn pride destroys fellowship faster than anything else. Pride builds walls between people. Humility builds bridges. Humility is the oil that smooths and soothes relationships. That's why the Bible says, Close yourself with humility towards one another. The proper dress for fellowship is a humble attitude. The rest of the verse says, Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the other reason we need to be humble. Pride blocks God's grace in our lives, which we must have in order to grow, change, heal, and help others. We receive God's grace by humility and admitting that we need it. The Bible says anything we are prideful, we are living in opposition to God. The Bible says any time we are prideful, we are living in opposition to God. That is a foolish and dangerous way to live. You can also develop humility in a very practical ways. By admitting your weaknesses, by being patient with others' weaknesses, by being open to correction, and by pointing the spotlight in others. Paul advised, live in a harmony with each other. Don't try to act important, but enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. To the Christian in Philippi, he wrote, Give more honor to others than to yourself. Do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking more of others. Humble people are so focused on serving others, they don't think of themselves. Cultivating community takes courtesy. Courtesy is respecting our differences, being considerate of each other's feelings, and being patient with others who irritate us. The Bible says we must bear the burdens of being considerate of the doubts and fears of others. Paul told Titus, God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. In every church and in every small group, there is always at least one difficult person usually more than one. These people may have special emotional needs. You might call them EGR people, extra grace required. (laughs) 
God puts these people in our midst for both their benefit and ours. They are an opportunity for growth and a test of fellowship. We will love them as brothers and sisters and treat them with dignity. Will we? Will we love them as brothers and sisters and treat them with dignity? In a family, acceptance isn't based on how smart or beautiful or talented you are. It's based on the fact that we were belong to each other. We defend and protect family. A family member may be a little goofy, but she's one of us in the same way. The Bible says, be devoted to each other like a loving family. Excel in showing respect for each other. The truth is, we all have quirks and annoying traits, but community has nothing to do with compatibility. The basis for a fellowship is our relationship to God. We're family. One key to courtesy is to understand where people are coming from. Discover their history when you know what they've been through, and you will be more understanding. Instead of thinking about how far they will have to go, think about how far they have come in spite of their hurts. Another part of courtesy is not downplaying other people's doubts. Just because you don't fear something doesn't make it an invalid feeling. Read community. Real community happens when people know it is safe enough to share their doubts and fears without being judged. Amen. See, there's no control freaks. And you got to say the truth if you feel like being a control freak is coming on you. Cultivating community tastes confidently. Only in a safe environment of warm acceptance and trusted confidentiality will people open up and share their deepest hurts, needs, and mistakes. Confidentiality does not mean keeping silent while your brother or sister sins. It means that what is shared in your group needs to stay in your group, and the group needs to deal with it, not gossip others about it. God hates gossip, especially when it is thinly disguised as prayer requests for someone else. God says, Gossip is spread by wicked people. They stir up trouble and break up friendship. Gossip always causes hurt and division and it destroys fellowship. And God is very clear that we are to confront those who cause division among Christians. They may get mad and leave your group or church if you confront them about their divisive actions. But the fellowship of the church is more important than any individual. Cultivating community takes frequency. You must have frequent, regular contact with your group in order to build genuine fellowship. Relationships take time. The Bible tells us, let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing instead. Let us encourage one another. We are to develop the habit of meeting together. A habit is something you do with frequency, not occasionally. You have to spend time with people, a lot of time, to build deep relationships. This is why fellowship is so shallow in many churches. We don't spend enough time together and the the time we do spend is usually listening to one person speak. Community is built not on convenience. We'll get together when I feel like it. But on the conviction that I need it for spiritual help, if you want to cultivate real fellowship, it will mean meeting together even when you don't feel like it. Because you believe it is important. The first Christian's meet together every day. They worship together regularly at the temple each day. 
meet in small groups and homes for communion, and share their meals with great joy and thankfulness. Fellowship required an investment of time. If you're a member of a small group or class, I urge you to make a group covenant that includes the, the nine characteristics of biblical fellowship. We will share our true feelings, authenticity, encourage each other, mutuality, support each other, sympathy, forgive each other, mercy, speak the truth in love, honesty, admit to weaknesses, humility, respect our differences, courtesy, not gossip confidently, and make group a priority frequency. When you look at the list of characteristics, it is obvious why genuine fellowship is so rare. It means giving up on our self-centeredness and independence in others to become independent. But the benefits of sharing life together far outweigh the cost, and it prepares us for heaven. Day 19. Thinking about my purpose. Points to ponder. Community requires commitment. Verse to remember. We understand what love is when we realize what Christ gave his life for us. We understand what love is when we realize that Christ gave his life for us. That means we must give our lives for other believers. 1 John 3.16 Questions to consider. How can I help cultivate today the characteristics of real community in my small group and my church? How can I help? By speaking the truth. Hallelujah. By saying out loud and talk really talk or having small Bible groups for dinner. Those were my notes from the last reading. Thank you so much. Thank God for this long reading, huh? Thank you, God. Thank you for hanging in there. May the Lord give you special blessings. The blessings of the Lord be upon your head. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Everything you touched will turn to gold. (laughs) I'm going to go touch my car and bless it. Have a great day. I love you. The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warden. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Restore our right relationship. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Give us a brand new heart in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Chapter 20, Restoring Broken Fellowship. God has restored our relationship with Him through Christ and has given us this ministry of restoring relationships. 2 Corinthians 5.18 The ministry of restoring relationships. Relationships are always worth restoring because life is all about learning how to love. God wants us to value relationships and make the effort to maintain them instead of discarding them whenever there is a rift, a hurt, or a conflict. In fact, the Bible tells us that God has given us the ministry of restoring relationships. For this reason, a significant amount of New Testament is devoted to teaching us how to get along with one another. Paul wrote, If you're getting anything at all out of following Christ... If his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Paul taught that our 
ability to get along with others is a mark of spiritual maturity. Since Christ wants his family to be known for our love for each other, broken fellowship is a disgraceful testimony to unbelievers. That is why Paul was so embarrassed that the members of the church in Corinth were splitting into warring factions and even taking each other to court. He wrote, Shame on you. Surely there is at least one wise person in your fellowship who can settle a dispute between fellow Christians. He was shocked that no one in the church was mature enough to resolve the conflict peacefully. In the same letter, he said, I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. If you want God's blessings on your life and you want to be known as a child of God, you must learn to be a peacemaker. Jesus said, God bless those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Notice Jesus didn't say, Blessed are the peace lovers, because everyone loves peace. Neither did he say, Blessed are the peaceable who are never disturbed by anything. Jesus said, Blessed are those who work for peace, those who actively seek to resolve conflict. Peacemakers are rare because peacemaking is hard work. Because you were formed to be a part of God's family and the second purpose of your life on earth is to learn how to love and relate to others. Peacemaking is one of the most important skills you can develop. Unfortunately, most of us were never taught how to resolve conflict. Peacemaking is not avoiding conflict, running from a problem, pretending it doesn't exist, or being afraid to talk about it. It, it, it is actually cowardice. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was never afraid of conflict. On occasion, he provoked it for the good of everyone. Sometimes we need to avoid conflict. Sometimes we need to create it. Sometimes we need to resolve it. That's why we must pray for the Holy Spirit's continued guidance. Peacemaking is, is also not appeasement. Always giving in, acting like a doormat, and allowing others to always run over you is not what Jesus had in mind. He refused to back down on many issues, standing his ground in the face of evil opposition. As believers, God has <clears throat> called us to settle our relationships with each other. Here are seven biblical steps to restoring fellowship. Talk to God before talking to the person. Discuss the problem with God. If you pray about the conflict first instead of gossiping to a friend, you will often discover that either God changes your heart or He changes the other person without your help. All your relationships would go smoother if you would just pray more about them. A side note, I, Fernando, would recommend that you pray for 14, 15 days for that person for about five minutes a day. Just give it all you got. The Our Father over his head. That's called intercession or Psalms 23. And you'd be surprised at the labor of love, how water will break through the dam and it will just wash through. That's my experience. And some of them don't, don't break as easily. And they're still there. Well, one of them. 
Okay, keep on reading. As David did with his Psalms, use prayer to ventilate vertically. Tell God your frustrations. Cry out to him. He's never surprised or upset by your anger, hurt, insecurity, or any other emotion. So tell him exactly how you feel. Most conflict is rooted in unmet needs. Some of these needs can only be met by God. When you expect anyone, a friend, a spouse, a boss, or family member to meet a need that only God can fulfill, you are setting up yourself for a disappointment and bitterness. No one can meet all your needs except God. The Apostle James noted that many of our conflicts are caused by prayerlessness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You want something but don't get it? You you do not have because you do not ask God. Instead of looking to God, we look to others to make us happy. And when then get angry when they fail us. God says, why don't you come to me first? Always take the initiative. It doesn't matter whether you are the offender or the offended. God expects you to make the first move. Don't wait for the other party. Go to them first. Restoring broken fellowship is so important. Jesus commanded that it even take priority over group worship. He said, if you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. When fellowship is strained or broken, plan a peace conference immediately. Don't procrastinate, make excuses or promise. I'll get around to it someday. Schedule a face-to-face meeting as soon as possible. Delay only deepens resentment and makes matters worse. In conflict, time heals nothing. It causes hurt to fester. Acting quickly also reduces the spiritual damage to you. The Bible says sin, including unresolved conflict, blocks out our fellowship with God and keeps our prayers from being unanswered. Besides making us miserable, Joe's friends reminded him, to worry yourself to death with resentment would be foolish, senseless thing to do. You are only hurting yourself with your anger. The success of peace conference often depends on choosing the right time and place to meet. Don't meet when either of you are tired or rushed or will be interrupted. The best time is when you both are at your best. Sympathize with their feelings. Use your ears more than your mouth before attempting to solve any disagreement. You must first listen to people's feelings. But advice, look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. The phrase look out for is the Greek word skopos, from which we form our words telescope and microscope. It means pay close attention, focus on their feelings, not the facts. Begin with sympathy, not solutions. Don't try to talk to people out of how they feel at first. Just listen and let them unload emotionally without being defensive. 
not that you understand even when you don't agree. Feelings are not always true or logical. In fact, resentment makes us act and think in foolish ways. The psalmist admitted, When my thoughts were bitter and my feelings were hurt, I was as stupid as an animal. We, are, we all act beastly when hurt. In contrast, the Bible says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Patience comes from wisdom, and wisdom comes from hearing and pers- the perspective of others. Listening says, I value your opinions. I care about our relationship, and you matter to me. The cliche is true. People don't care what we know until they know what we care. People don't care what we know until they know we care. To restore fellowship, we must bear the burdens of being considerate of the doubts and fears of others. Let's please the other fellow, not ourselves, and do what is for his good. It is a sacrifice to patiently absorb anger of others, especially if it's unfounded. But remember, this is what Jesus did for you. He endured unfounded malicious anger in order to save you. Christ did not indulge in his own feelings. As scripture says, the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Confess your part of the conflict. If you are serious about restoring a relationship, you should begin with admitting your own mistakes of sin. Jesus said it's the way to see things more clearly. First, get rid of all the logs from your eyes, your own eyes. Then perhaps you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Since we all have blind spots, you may need to ask a third party to help evaluate your own actions before meeting with the person with whom you have a conflict. Also, ask God to show you how much of a broken How much of the problem is your fault? Ask, am I the problem? Am I being unrealistic, insensitive, or too sensitive? The Bible says, if we claim that we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. Confession is a powerful tool for reconciliation. Often the way we handle a conflict creates a bigger hurt than the original problem itself. When you begin to, by humbly admitting your mistake, it diffuses the other person's anger and disarms their attack because they are probably expecting you to be defensive. Don't make excuses or shift the blame. Just honestly own up to any part you have played in this conflict. Accept responsibility for your own, for your mistakes and ask for forgiveness. Attack the problem, not the person. You cannot fix the problem if you're consumed with fixing the blame. You must choose between the two. The Bible says, A gentle response diffuses anger, but a sharp tongue kindles a temper fire. You will never get your point across by being cross, so choose your words wisely. A soft answer is always better than a sarcastic one. In resolving conflict, 
how you say it is as important as what you say. If you say it offensively, it will be received offensively. God tells us, A wise, mature person is known for his understanding. The more pleasant his words, the more persuasive he is. Nagging never works. You are never persuasive when you're abrasive. During the Cold War, both sides agreed that some weapons were too so destructive they should never be used. Today, chemical and biological weapons are banned, and the stockpiles of nuclear weapons are being reduced and destroyed. For the sake of fellowship, you must destroy your arsenal of relationship nuclear relational nuclear weapons, including con- condemning, belittling, comparing, labeling, insulting, condescending, and being sarcastic. Paul sums it up this way. Do not use harmful words, but only helpful words, the kind that build up and provide what is needed so that what you say would be do good to those who hear you. Cooperate as much as possible. Paul said, do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everybody. Peace always has a price tag. Sometimes it comes our it costs our pride. It often costs our self-centeredness. For the sake of fellowship, do your best to compromise, adjust to others, and show preference to what they need. A paraphrase of Jesus' seven Beatitudes says, You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Emphasize reconciliation, not resolution. It is unrealistic to expect everyone to agree about everything. Reconciliation focuses on the relationship, while resolution focuses on the problem. When we focus on reconciliation, the problem loses significance and often becomes irrelevant. We can reestablish a relationship even when we are unable to resolve our differences. Christians often have legitimate, honest disagreements and different opinions, but we can disagree without being disagreeable. The same diamond looks different from different angles. God expects unity, not uniformity. And we can walk arm-in-arm without being seen eye-to-eye on every issue. This doesn't mean you give up on finding a solution. You may need to continue discussing and even debating, but you do it in a spirit of harmony. Reconciliation means you bury the hatchet, not necessarily the issue. When you need to contact as a result, who do you need to contact? as a result of this chapter. With whom do you need to restore real fellowship? Don't delay another second. Pause right now and talk to God about that person. Then pick up the phone and begin the process. These seven steps are simple, but they are not easy. It takes a lot of effort to restore relationship. That's why Peter urged, work hard at living in peace with others. But when you work for peace, you are doing what God would do. 
That's why God calls peacemakers his children. Day 21, thinking about my purpose. Points to ponder after reading this chapter. Relationships are always worth restoring. The verse to remember and memorize, do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everybody. Romans 12, 18. And a question to consider, what do I need to restore a broken relationship with today? Amen. Go at it in Jesus' name. Chapter 21, Protecting Your Church. You are joined together with peace through the Spirit. So make every effort to continue together in this way. Ephesians 4, verse 3. Most of all, let love guide your life. And then the whole church will stay together in perfect harmony. Colossians 3.14 It is your job to protect the unity of your church. Unity in the church is so important that the New Testament gives more attention to it than to either heaven or hell. God deeply desires that we experience oneness and harmony with each other. Unity is the soul of fellowship. Destroy it and you rip the heart out of Christ's body. It is the essence, the core of how God intends for us to experience life together in His church. Our supreme model for unity is the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely unified as one. God Himself is the highest example of sacrificial love, humble other-centeredness, and perfect harmony. Just like every parent, our Heavenly Father enjoys watching His children get along with each other. In His final moments before being arrested, Jesus prayed passionately for our unity. It was our unity that was uppermost in His mind during those agonizing hours. That shows how significant this subject is. Nothing on earth is more valuable to God than His church. He paid the highest price for it, and He wants it protected, especially from the devastating damage that it caused by division, conflict, and disharmony. If you are part of God's family, it is your responsibility to protect the unity where you fellowship. You are commissioned by Jesus Christ to do everything possible to preserve the unity, Protect the fellowship and promote harmony in your church, family, and among all believers. The Bible says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How are we to do this? The Bible gives us practical advice. Focus on what we have in common, not our differences. Paul tells us, Let us concentrate on the things which make for harmony and on the growth of one another's character. 
As believers, we share one Lord, one body, one purpose, one Father, one Spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, and one love. We share the same salvation, the same life, and the same future. Factors far more important than any differences we could enumerate. These are the issues, not our personal differences, that we should concentrate on. We must remember that it was God who chose to give us different personalities, backgrounds, races, and preference. So we should value and enjoy those differences, not merely tolerate them. God wants unity, not uniformity. But for the unity's sake, we must never let differences divide us. We must stay focused in what matters most, learning to love each other as Christ has loved us and fulfilling God's five purposes for each of us in His church. Conflict is usually a sign that the focus has shifted to less important issues, things the Bible calls disputable matters. When we focus on personalities, preferences, interpretations, styles, or methods, division always happens. But if we concentrate on loving each other and fulfilling God's purposes, harmony results. Paul pleaded for this. Let there be real harmony so there won't be divisions in the church. I plead with you to be of one mind, unity in thought and purpose. Be realistic in your expectations. Once you discover what God intends real fellowship to be, it is easy to become discouraged by the gap between the ideal and the real in your church. Yet we must passionately love the church in spite of its imperfections. Longing for the idea while criticizing the real is evidence of immaturity. On the other hand, settling for the real without striving for the ideal is complacency. Maturity is living with attention. Other believers will disappoint you and let you down, but that's no excuse to stop fellowshipping with them. They are your family, even when they don't act like it. And you can't just walk out on them. Instead, God tells us, Be patient with one another, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. People become disillusioned with the church for many understandable reasons. The list could be quite long. Conflict, hurt, hypocrisy, neglect, pettiness, legalism, and other sins. Rather than being shocked and surprised, we must remember that the church is made up of real sinners, including ourselves. Because we were sinners, we hurt each other, sometimes unintentionally and sometimes unintentionally. But instead of leaving the church, we need to stay and work it out, if at all possible. Reconciliation, not running away, is the road to stronger character and deeper fellowship. Divorcing your church at the first sign of disappointment or disillusionment is a mark of immaturity. God has things He wants to teach you and others too. Besides, there is no perfect church to escape to. 
Every church has its own set of weaknesses and problems. You'll soon be disappointed again. Groucho Marx was a famous for saying he, he wouldn't want to belong to any club that wouldn't let him in. If a church must be perfect to satisfy you, the same perfection will exclude you from membership because you're not perfect. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was martyred for resisting Nazis, wrote a classic book on fellowship, Life Together. In it, he suggested that disillusionment with our local church is a good thing because it destroys our false expectations of perfection. The sooner we give up the illusion that a church must be perfect in order to love it, the sooner we quit pretending and start admitting we're all imperfect and need grace. This is the beginning of real community. Every church could put out a sign, no perfect people need apply. This is a place only for those who admit they are sinners, need grace, and want to grow. Bonhoeffer said, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary we keep complaining that everything is paltry and petty, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow. Choose to encourage rather than criticize. It is always easier to stand on the sidelines and take shots at those who are serving than it is to get involved and make a contribution. God wants us over and over not to criticize, compare, or judge each other. When you criticize what another believer is doing in faith and from sincere conviction, you are interfering with God's business. What right do you have to criticize someone else's servant? Only their Lord can decide if they are doing right. Paul adds that we must not stand in judgment or look down on other believers whose convictions differ from our own. Why then criticize your brother's actions? Why try to make him look small? We shall all be judged one day, not by each other's standards or even our own, but by the standards of Christ. Whenever I judge another believer, four things instantly happen. I lose fellowship with God. I expose my own pride and insecurity. I set myself up to be judged by God, and I harm the fellowship of the church. A critical spirit is costly vice. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of our brethren. It is the devil's job to blame, complain, and criticize members of God's family. Anytime we do the same, we're being duped into doing Satan's work for him. Remember, other Christians, no matter how much you disagree with them, are not the real enemy. Anytime we spend comparing, 
or criticizing other believers, it's time that we should have been spent building the unity of our fellowship. The Bible says, Let's agree to use all of our energy in getting along with each other. Help others with encouraging words. Don't drag them down by finding fault. Refuse to listen to gossip. Gossip is passing on information when you are neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. You know spreading gossip is wrong, but you should not listen to it either if you want to protect your church. Listening to gossip is like accepting stolen property, and it makes you just as guilty as the crime. When someone begins to gossip to you, have the courage to say, Please stop. I don't need to know this. Have you talked directly to the person? People who gossip to you will also gossip about you. They cannot be trusted. If you listen to gossip, God says you are a troublemaker. Troublemakers listen to troublemakers. These are the ones who split churches thinking only of themselves. It is sad that in God's flock, the greatest wounds usually come from other sheep, not wolves. Paul warned about the cannibal Christian who devour one another. and destroy the fellowship. The Bible says these kind of troublemakers should be avoided. A gossip reveals secret, therefore do not associate with a blabber, babbler. The fastest way to end a church or small group conflict is to lovingly confront those who are gossiping and insist they stop it. Solomon pointed out, fire goes out for lack of fuel and tensions disappear. When gossip stops, practice God's methods for conflicting, conflict resolutions. In addition to the principle mentioned in the last chapter, Jesus gave the church a simple three-way step process. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. During conflict, it is tempting to complain to a third party rather than encouragingly speaking the truth in love to the person you're upset with. This makes the matters worse. Instead, you should go directly to the person involved. Private confrontation is always the first step, and you should take it as soon as possible. If you're unable to work things out between the two of you, the next step is to take one of the two witnesses to help confirm the problem and reconcile the relationship. What would you do if the person is still stuck in stubbornness. Jesus said to take it to the church. If the person will refuse to listen after that, you should treat the person like an unbeliever. Support your pastor and leaders. 
There are no perfect leaders, but God gives leaders the responsibility and the authority to maintain the unity of the church. During interpersonal conflict with his thankless job, pastors often have the unpleasant task of serving as mediators between hurt, conflict, or immaturity members. They're also given the impossible task of trying to make everyone happy which even Jesus could not do. The Bible is clear about how we are to relate to those who serve us. Be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are alert to the conditions of your life and work under the strict supervision of God. Contribute to the joy of their leadership not in drudgery. Why would you want to make things harder for them? Pastors will one day stand before God and give an account to how well they watch over you. They keep watch over you as men must watch, must give an account. But you are unaccountable too. You will give an account to God on how well you follow your leaders. The Bible gives passion. The Bible gives pastors with passion very specific instructions on how to deal with divisive people in the fellowship. They are to avoid arguing, gently teach the opinion while praying they'll change. Warn those who are argumentative, plead for harmony and unity. Rebuke those who are disrespectful of leadership and remove divisive people from the church if they ignore two warnings. We protect the fellowship when we honor those who serve us by leading. Pastors and elders need our prayers, encouragement, appreciation, and love. We are commanded, honor those leaders who work so hard for you, who have been given the responsibility of urging and guiding you along in your obedience. Overwhelm them with appreciation and love. I challenge you to keep your responsibility to protect and promote the unity of your church. Put your full effort into it and God will be pleased. It will not always be easy. Sometimes you will have to what do what's best for the body, not yourself, showing preference to others. That's one reason God puts in a, in a church family to learn unselfishness. In community, we learn to say, we instead of I, and are instead of mine. God says, don't think only of your own good. Think of other Christians and what is best for them. God blesses churches that are unified. At Saddleback Church, every member signs a covenant that includes a promise to protect the unity of our fellowship. As a result, the church has never had a conflict that split the fellowship. Just as important because it is lovingly unified fellowship, a lot of people want to be part of it. In the past seven years, the church has baptized over 9,100 new believers. When God has bunched 
When God has a bunch of baby believers he wants to deliver, When God has a bunch of baby believers he wants to deliver, he looks for the warmest incubator church they can find. What are you doing personally to make your church family more warm and loving? There are many people in your community who are looking for love and a place to belong. The truth is, everyone needs and wants to be loved. And when people find a church where members genuinely love and care for each other, you would have to lock the doors to keep them away. Day 21. Thinking about my purpose. Points to ponder. It is my responsibility to protect the unity of the church. Verse, verse to remember. Let us concentrate on the things that make for harmony and the growth of our fellowship together. Romans 14, 19. Let us concentrate on the things which make for harmony and the growth of the fellowship together. Romans 14, 19. Questions to consider. What am I personally doing to protect unity in my church? Finally, family night right now. What am I personally doing to protect unity in in my church, family, right now? Amen and amen. Chapter 21. Thank you for listening. A reading from today from a, a book sent to me by Les Alcana. Actually, a page, a picture of a page. It's a meditation book. But uh, it says something about nurturing. Many of us have been so deprived of nurturing that we think it's silly or self-indulgent. Nurturing is neither silly nor self-indulgent. It's how we show love for ourselves. That's what we're striving for in recovery. A loving relationship with ourselves that works. So we can have loving relationship with others that work. When we hurt, we ask ourselves that we need to help us feel better. When we feel alone, we reach out to someone safe without feeling that we are a burden. We allow that person to be there for us. We rest when we're tired, eat when we're hungry, have fun or relax when our spirits need a lift. Nurturing means giving ourselves gifts. A trip to the beauty salon or barber shop, a massage, a book, a new jacket, or a new suit or dress. It means a long, hot bath to forget about our problems and the world for a few moments when that would feel good. We learn to be gentle with ourselves and to open up to the nurturing that others have to offer us. As part of nurturing ourselves, we allow ourselves to give and receive positive touch, touch that feels appropriate to us, touch that is safe, We reject touch that doesn't feel good or safe and is not positive. We learn to give ourselves what we need in a gentle, loving, compassionate way. We do this with the understanding it will not make us lazy, spoiled, self-centered, or narcissistic. Nurture people are effective in their work and in their relationships. 
We learn to feel loved by ourselves so much that we can truly love others and let them love us. Today, I will nurture myself. I will also be open to the nurturing that I can give to others and receive from them. Amen. And that is Elon and AA and good common sense to, uh, to be happy, joyous, and free. Okay, as the world turns, God has it. God is in control. I just thank him for what's around me. Because Matthew 6.14, this is yesterday's, um, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Matthew 6.14. You know, in all my walk, of, of um, that's the one I have the hardest time, is, is to going back and forgiving others. So I had to go back to childhood and write everybody's name. If there was a little bit of smoke, I wrote their names. And then I lifted that envelope, put them in an envelope, and I lifted up to God in prayer for a long time till there was no more uh, unforgiveness or hurts, you know. When I saw the person and I did not act uh, in any way negative, that subconscious, uh, Enthusiastically, I greeted the person because I didn't have any more snags in my soul against the person, you know, and I remember it works wonders. When I allow, this is from Saturday, December 26, yesterday, I free myself through the power of forgiveness. And forgiving yourself too, you can't nurture yourself unless you I say, okay, Fernando, I thank you, God, that I'm a misfit. I messed up. Now, what are we going to do about it, God? Now, we're talking to God. Now, it is God who's responsible for us as a father who uh, orchestrates and moves our feelings around. Well, what we're going to do about it is, is, is forgive. Forgive the hard one. Write their names down on a piece of paper and forgive. And it says right here, I take comfort in the unconditional love of God and extend that love to everyone in my relationships, even my enemies, okay? Even the ones who hurt us the most, who took our wives, killed our kids, ransacked our home, burned everything. I make a commitment to lovingly forgive so I am able to live more fully and freely. I also offer myself grace and forgiveness for my mistakes. There you go. And I try to learn from my missteps so I don't repeat my hurtful behavior. When I forgive others and myself, I let go of resentment and free myself from harmful and unpleasant feelings. Forgiveness may not minimize the impact of the damage done, but it releases me from holding on to pain. When I allow forgiveness to dissolve my negative feelings, I demonstrate my belief in God's unconditional love. My actions bring me into alignment with the truth of my spiritual nature. And I am free. Again, Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Amen. Matthew 6, 14. Enjoy. Have a great day. Give them heaven. <laughs>